Today we continue our sermon series on the stories of Christmas and I'm excited to continue the conversation about uh, the birth of Jesus and we've been taking taking a look at different characters and the first week we talked about the reality that we don't want to miss Jesus this Christmas and sometimes we can get caught up in all sorts of different things activities in the midst of Christmas and we actually we miss Jesus altogether and been challenging you guys to not miss Jesus Christmas and do some specific things as a family individually and it's just been awesome to see you guys take that challenge seriously uh, to see the advent calendars being taken and used and walk beside uh, your children and focusing them on Jesus and you focusing on Jesus and and it's been fun because not only have you taken those advent calendars home but in addition to that been watching on social media you guys have been posting times with your kids opening up the scripture pointing them to Jesus which is just amazing because it's a picture of you taking seriously the commands that Jesus and the Bible calls us to to disciple our children and to focus our hearts towards Jesus over and over and over again this season. Last week we talked about the shepherds and we talked about uh, inviting the outsider in and how the shepherds are, is a perfect picture of that reality that they were they were not the people that you would expect to be invited to the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God here on earth being born. Shepherds were the first one to witness the birth of Jesus. And so today we're going to be taking a look at another character, but I, I wanted to share with you, I participated in um, what they call AI uh, photos that are going viral on Facebook. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, but uh, I saw Jenny, our, our children's uh, pastor, she, she posted them and I was like, man, I keep seeing these. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do this because it fits perfectly for the start of my sermon. And so I downloaded the dang app and I did it. And I, I took, I went and had to find 10 selfies of myself, which was actually really hard to do to find, uh, to upload these photos. And I don't know what they're going to do with these photos um, secretly, but uh, this is called the Rockstar part one. And so um, this is my favorite one. Actually, it's my second favorite one. I'll get to my favorite one here in a second. And then there's Rockstar Part 2, which just makes my hand head really round. But, you know, um, you know. Um, the next one is Sci-Fi, which I like this one. This is a good one. I like it. Notice that all my selfies have some type of hunting gear on. I don't know if you are catching on the theme here. This is my ultimate favorite one, Superhero. Look at that. Look at that. Some of you are like, you've never looked like that. No, I used to look like that. My children have never seen me look like that, but yeah. Um, mystical, this is the next one, mystical. And then lastly, cosmic. So yeah, why do we like these things? I think we like these things because there, there are certain scenes or certain things that we think about, like what would it look like if I was in a cosmic universe? What would it look like if I was in a sci-fi film? What would it look like if I was a rock star? Like all these different scenarios that we really don't have clarity of picture as to what you might look like. And so these images are actually just generated to help fill in the blank a little bit as to how we see ourselves or maybe how the world may see us in these certain contexts or settings that we normally don't, we don't have access to and like when none of us are at least I don't know are rock stars or actors in a sci-fi film or a, co uh, a cosmic space film and so sometimes we just fill in the blank or we have an ability to fill in the blank and sometimes when it comes to the story of Christmas we fill in the blank 
of some of these characters because of images that we see or maybe how they're being portrayed. And one of those is Mary. When it comes to the, the character of Mary, oftentimes we see her riding on a donkey. Or maybe the image that you have is her in the nativity scene where she's holding Jesus. And it's this picture of Mary that I don't know about you, but oftentimes the, the narrative or the picture of, of Mary is this quiet, um, maybe meek, humble woman with the birth of Jesus. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. But I think when we actually look into the text, we actually begin to understand um, the depth of Mary and who she was as a woman. We look at actually some significance to the, to the role that she plays in the birth of the Messiah. And my hope today is that we would look at the Bible and we'd actually look at Mary from a very different place than maybe we see her with images that we see online um, or in stories that we, that we think about. What, what was Mary like? Luke chapter 1 tells us a little bit about Mary. Luke chapter 1 verse 26 it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Everybody say Mary this morning. This is a really important, verse 26 and 27. Why does this matter? Because it puts a time stamp of what's going on in Mary's life and the significance of what's going on in Mary's life. She is a virgin, it says plainly. Not only is she a virgin, she's pledged to be married. We would use the word engaged. They would use the word betrothed. There we say betrothed this morning. We don't use that word um, very often. We use the term engagement. And our process of being engaged, getting engaged, is actually super informal compared to the first century. For us, um, we go and we oftentimes go and ask the father of the future bride, uh, can I marry your daughter? I remember when I called my uh, father-in-law, now father-in-law, and I called about a month before Christmas, and I said, I want to marry your daughter. Do I have permission, as he lived in another state, to marry your daughter? And he goes, I was wondering why you were calling me at 8.30 at night out of the blue. I was wondering if this phone call was coming. I'm like, well, it's here. Um, I'd like to marry your daughter. And he, he gave me his blessing. And you guys heard a couple weeks ago the story of me getting up on Christmas morning at 2 in the morning, driving all the way over to Puyallup, Tacoma, Washington, and proposing to my wife and her being surprised, not expecting me to be there that early in the day. And as, I, as she opened up the door and I got down on one knee and proposed to her, she said, shut up and slammed the door in my face. It was awesome, right? And that'd be, that's the informal process. I say informal because it's very different than the first century. Uh, they had a very formalized process. This engagement betrothal process was an arrangement by parents with the couple's consent, okay? And so mom and dad on both sides would arrange the marriage with the couple's consent. Girls were getting married between the ages of 13 and 15 years old, okay? super young. Uh, husbands, the, the guy, 17 to 19 years old, and it was initiated with, with a marriage contract called the ketubah. Everybody say ketubah. 
And, and this ketubah had the, the uh, bride price and a dowry. And what this is, is it's actually a process of, of the guy coming and saying, I'm going to offer something for your daughter because I know you're losing your daughter. Some of you are saying, is this, a, is this a buying price? And that kind of gets labeled to a certain extent. But really, it's recognizing that if I'm taking your daughter, you're going to lose part of your family. And so I'm going to compensate you for that loss. In addition to that, uh, the, the bride would then receive a dowry that if anything were to happen, if there were divorce, if, the, if there was adultery, if there was the death of the husband, she would be able to continue to take care of herself. And so this was the process of becoming engaged. This was a legally binding process and contract, as you will. So from this moment on, you were considered married even though you have not yet consummated the marriage. And so Mary and Joseph in this moment and in this time, as Mary is getting news that she is actually miraculously having a child, she is actually married to Joseph, even though she's technically engaged, betrothed. This makes sense when it comes to Joseph's response as he hears that Mary is pregnant, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace or shame, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In the community's eyes, she's already married, even though they have not consummated the marriage. In addition to that, as they began this process of agreeing with the ketubah, there was no intimacy or, or unchaperoned alone time, and it was for a year because they didn't want any funny business going on, if you know what I mean. They were trying to protect the marriage date and the consummation of the marriage. Um, eventually, what happened is the, the future groom or husband would leave after the ketubah was agreed to, would leave and begin to create a home for his future bride. And he would create room after room, if they needed multiple, as a home, as he would come and actually live with his father. And they would actually begin to start uh, their marriage uh, formally and begin to have a family together. If you're familiar with the text, you begin to understand what Jesus is saying in this process of John chapter 14, verse two, as he's telling his disciples that he's actually going to leave this earth, he begins to use wedding language. John chapter 14, verse two, my father's house has many, what's he, has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place to where I am going. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? Is he saying, I love you. I love you so much that I want to have an intimate relationship with you. I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's the idea of eternity and preparing this idea, this picture of, of marriage language that Jesus is using with his disciples. This is what Joseph would have been doing in this time, is he would have been going away, preparing a place for Mary to eventually consummate the marriage, the wedding celebration, very different than ours. It began with a procession where the, the husband would go and grab the bride, bring her to um, his father's house, and it'd be a huge party. They'd invite the whole neighborhood together. It'd be a multi-day celebration, usually seven days of a party, and it would consummate with the marriage on the first night. And so Mary finds herself hearing the news 
that she's pregnant in the midst of the betrothal engagement process. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Before they came together to consummate the marriage, she became pregnant through the Holy Spirit. There's implications to this statement. How would her community view her if she is pregnant and yet hasn't been with Joseph? She would have been known as an adulterer. The label would have automatically been assumed. She's an adulteress. And there's implications to her being an adulteress. Deuteronomy chapter 22 says this, that if a man happens to meet in a town a virgin who's pledged to be married, Mary to Joseph, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and have them be stoned to death. Significant, right? In the first century, the theologians described that this practice wasn't taking place, and so we know in the story that Mary is not stoned. But here's the implications of Mary's reality. She would have been labeled an adulteress. She would have been sent back home to her father and mother. And as she's sent home to her father and mother, she would have been shamed and guilted by her family and community for the rest of her life. Because they lived in a shame, guilt, honor society, this is the reality of what she'd be facing. And you might be saying, well, she didn't lose her life. Honestly, the continual shame and guilt that she would have received, death would have been an easier sentence than constantly being shamed. And for some of you, you may even relate to this because you grew up in a family that constantly shamed and guilted you. And you can imagine the weight that Mary might be thinking and processing with the reality that I'm pregnant. Miraculously, how is the world going to see me? But I want you to notice Mary's response. Luke chapter one, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. And Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. God gives Mary a bold mission and she follows God into the unknown and she does it courageously. Imagine what was going through her mind and her heart as she hears this news and yet she looks to God and says, if this is what you've called me to be, this is what you've called me to do, if this is what I need to step into, I'm willing to do it courageously. In addition to that, I want you to notice that it just starts in verse 38. It says, I am the Lord's servant. In the ESV, it says this. Mary said, behold. Everybody say, behold. I love that. Behold. Why is it translated behold? The reason why is because there is this Greek word that says, uh, it's the word edu, which I, it's a great, great word to say, right? Let's say edu this morning. Edu. edu. What does that mean? It means look or behold. And it's tied actually to a Hebrew word called haneni. Everybody say haneni. Which is why I like this next translation, the NRSV. It says, then Mary said, here am I. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Here I am, Hanani. It's the Hebrew uh, response to a divine calling. And if you know your Bible really, really well, this phrase, here I am or here am I, is found all throughout the Bible. 
Moses, when he's being called by God in the desert, Moses, Moses, you hear the Charlton Hessen voice, don't you, when you hear that? And Moses responds with, here I am. Here I am. When Abraham is called by God to give up his child, Abraham, Abram, Abram, Abraham, Abraham responds with, here I am, Lord. When, when God says that he's interacting and looking across the world and he's seeing his children that need to be sent a new message in the book of Isaiah and Isaiah is seeing uh, God have this conversation with his creation, eventually God says, who am I supposed to send? Who am I supposed to send to my world to redeem my children, to bring back my children, to, to bring back the brokenness of my culture and my society? Who can I send? And Isaiah stands up and says, here I am, Lord. And even Jesus, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's crying out to God, and he's saying, God, if there's another way to redeem the world, if there's another way, as he's preparing to go to the cross, preparing to die for the sins of the world, he says, God, if there's another way, can we do that other way? But if there's not another way, may your will be done. And Jesus has his here am I moment where he says to the Lord, I'm here. May not your will be done or my will be done, but may your will be done. Here am I, this Hanani statement is this amazing picture where Mary, in spite of the challenges that she sees ahead, is willing to walk through the plan that God has for her life. And the question I have for you this morning is that do you believe that you're called to courageously follow Jesus in the unknown in spite of the risks? Are you willing to follow Jesus into the unknown in spite of the risks? That really, when we talk about Christmas, yes, it, it is all the things we've been talking about, but the Christmas spirit, the ability to experience all that God has for us, it's born when you say, here I am. The Christmas spirit is born when you say, here I am. When you declare to God, I'm here to be used by you, Lord. What are you inviting me into? What is something courageously that you're asking me to step into that maybe I might have insecurity or fear or worry about, but I'm willing to trust you in this, just like Mary was willing to trust the Father. I think back about my life and the best Christmases that I've been a part of. I've been Christmases where I didn't want to miss Jesus and I want to experience him in a powerful way. And I was willing to step into the unknown no matter what the costs were. I just want to share some of those things with you, not to say that you necessarily need to do what I did, but I just want to share with you the profound impact of experiencing Jesus in past Christmases that I have. I'll tell you the first one was this, and you've heard me say this before, is when I was a freshman in Bible college, if you don't know, when you're a freshman in Bible college, you're a dangerous individual because you know a lot about the Bible, but sometimes you don't have the right heart when it comes to knowing the Bible and the truth. And so my first Christmas in Bible college, my family wasn't going to church. Um, I was trying to love them and reach them, but I wasn't loving them very well. But I thought to myself, I could save my family. I could make a difference. And so you know what I bought for them? My first Christmas, my freshman year of Bible college, I bought my whole family Bibles. And you should have seen their face when they opened up those Bibles together. Thanks. And even though Maybe my heart wasn't great at loving my family at that moment, that time. 
Just the simple act of taking a step of faith, a bold, courageous faith, knowing that there was risk, but knowing they needed a Bible. It was about a year later when my brother started coming back to church. And when he walked through the doors of Edwards Theater, when we launched this church, do you know what he had in his hand? That Bible that I bought him. And over the coming years, I watched my brother tear apart that Bible in a good way, highlighting it in notes and writing and learning and growing with Jesus. It was a risk, wasn't it? Huge risk. But God used it in spite of maybe even me not really loving and leading great with my family. The other thing that I think about is is the Christmases in the past when my family, I come from a divorced family, and so my family was broken through a lot of holidays, a lot of awkwardness, But I remember specific Thanksgivings and specific Christmases where I took a risk and said, let's invite them over. Let's invite them over for dinner. And it was hard. It was awkward. And there was a risk involved. But I said, Lord, I know this is what you want. You want our family back together. And so, Natalie, let's do this. Let's invite them over. The other thing that I remember is us challenging the status quo as a family about overspending on presents and making presents everything that it was about in regards to Christmas. Now, do we still do presents? Yeah, we do. But is it the only thing we do? It's a very small thing of what we do compared to the rest of the activities we do as a, as a family. A risk. A risk that my kids would ask the question, why does everybody else get presents and we don't get as many? But this is what I've noticed. Talking to my son this last week about Christmas, he goes, He says this, he goes, we get so many gifts during Christmas. So many gifts. He's recognizing not just the material things, but so much more in regards to Christmas. The last story I want to tell you is early on, uh, we weren't able to meet at the movie theater as a church. And so we really didn't have a place to actually have Christmas Eve services. Uh, The movie theater I don't know if you realize this, they, they do really well on Christmas Eve when it comes to movies. They didn't want us taking up a movie theater and distracting from their profit. And so we had to get creative about what we were gonna do as a church. And so one of the things we decided to do is what if we served our community on Christmas Eve? And what we did is we, we gathered baskets together as a church and we filled them with all sorts of goodies, put some real life mugs in it. And we went to the fire, fire, fire departments and went to the firefighters and said, thank you for serving our community on Christmas Eve. We went to the police department and said, thank you for serving our community on Christmas Eve. We went to nursing homes and people that had to work during Christmas Eve. Thank you for being away from your family. We went to all these different places. We went to motels and hotels. And I'll never forget one night as we got done serving the community, we went went back home. And I received an email from a man who was working at a hotel who said, you don't understand what your gift did in my mind and my heart tonight. And he described in detail the story that he was going, he had a perfectly planned out plan of execution of committing suicide that night. And that that gift, that basket full of goodies and different things, it changed the trajectory of his mind about what he needed to do that night. This is a man that had a wife and multiple kids. Was there a risk involved? 
You bet. But what I've noticed is that when we take a risk, when we follow God into the unknown, and we trust him with what he calls us to, there's always life on the other side of it. There's always life on the other side of it. The spirit of Christmas is born when you say, here I am. The spirit of Christmas is born when you say to the Lord, I'm here to serve you. We're called to be a courageous people who follow in obedience no matter the cost. We're called to be a people who lead the way in the spirit of Christmas with faith, hope, joy, peace, and love. And it starts with serving and following Jesus. So as we wrap up the message today, I just, I just want to remind you that you were called to say, here I am. You're called to say, here I am, Lord. And for some of you, the Lord's been speaking to you to do something that's out of the box, something that's out of the ordinary, something that requires risk. And I want to tell you, I want to invite you, take the risk. Step in. Step in. Serve. Love. Do something that maybe is going to require you to, to count the cost. Count the cost. Trust Jesus. Step into it. Take a risk in following Jesus in a deeper way this Christmas. For some of you, you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never made him Lord of your life. And there's all this risk involved. Jesus is inviting you to say, here I am. Here to follow you, Lord. Here to follow you. For, for some of you, you need help. You're not okay. You're not okay. If there's ever a place to say, I'm not okay, it's Real Life Ministries. We are full of broken people who are trying to figure out the mess of life. And we have the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus wants to meet you in the mess of life. So as we wrap up this morning and get ready to have our kids come up and bring us joy, we're gonna have a meal together called communion. And we just invite you to think about these things in regards to communion. If you came this morning and you weren't ready to take communion, you forgot to get the elements, or you weren't thinking about taking communion, but now you want to take communion, if you just want to raise your hand because you don't have the elements, these amazing servants will be sure to serve you. Keep your hand up, and they'll walk around and make sure they bless you with the elements.